please rise together and we will read the word of the Lord from John chapter 19, starting with verse 38. Please read together with me. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by himself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, church. There we go. Feels so good to actually hear a response. <laughs> um, we welcome you to PCC. My name's Adam. I'm the youth pastor here um, at, at PCC. Um, and I am, uh, I'm so excited to be back. I know I'm wearing a mask, so you can't tell, but I'm, I am smiling. Um, but I am just so joyous to be back, so joyous to have people with us to hear us singing psalms together uh, is it's truly wonderful, truly something to be missed. And thank all of you uh, for joining us online. Um, you might be wondering, since this is the first week back, that my family's not here. You might not, you're not seeing the two most beautiful girls in the world, not in our congregation. Um, and the reason for that is, is that uh, they actually took off to Michigan um, just a few days ago to wish uh, one of their dear friends, Zella, a happy fourth birthday. So Zella, if you're watching, happy birthday to you. Thank you for stealing my family from me this weekend. Um, but that's, that's, that's why they're not there. <clears throat> so if, um, well, if you haven't been here in quite some time or you're new, uh, we have been reading and we've been uh, preaching through the book of John and it's been 
uh, two years almost, a year and a half endeavor, and we're, we're coming to the close of it. Um, and I really just want to thank Pastor Hans and Gordon um, for how they we have collaborated together. We read scripture together, and we studied together, and we, we prayed about, you know, what is God speaking to us through these words? Um, and I really want to thank um, Pastor Hans for uh, leaving me uh, probably the greatest discovery in mankind, an empty tomb. Praise God. I mean, a wonderful, beautiful passage and a wonderful great reminder to us in this time of chaos um, that he is risen. Let's pray. Lord, you are king of all. All things are under your authority. And in spite of ourselves, in spite of our unbelief, we see today that you have conquered the grave. Death itself cannot touch you, nor those who proclaim the name of Christ. What good news this is, Lord. I pray for our hearts and our souls amidst this chaotic time, a time of much confusion, a time of Wretchedness, really, Lord. Remind us of this good news. Remind us that as we remind us that it is finished. The work is completed. Heaven gate, heaven's gates are open. Lord, I pray you be with me, my mind, my heart. May my lips speak only of your wonders and your glory and your goodness. And Lord, may your church receive your glory and goodness and with, with abounding hearts. May we be like Mary. May we run to those that we know and proclaim he is risen. Pray this all in your wonderful name. Amen. Um, so <clears throat> last week, we were um, looking at the crucifixion. Um, and does anyone remember the Greek word that we were using last week? Telestai. Thank you, Pastor Hans. Telestai, right? To mean completed, paid in full, right? And, and, and we looked at, Pastor Hans <laughs> took a step-by-step, step. what is finished? How is it finished? What do we do now that it is finished, right? And, and hopefully in these passages, as I've looked at them, I see um, that he invited us. As Pastor Hans taught us last week, he invited us to look upon him whom they have pierced. What does it mean to look upon our Lord and Savior? What did it mean to them then? What does it mean to us today as his servants? And so as I'm preaching today, I hope that the gaze continues, that we're fixating our eyes on Christ, we're fixating our eyes on the cross and on the tomb. Um, <clears throat> John 19.38 says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, bringing him a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, 
So they took the body of Jesus and bound him in linen cloths, linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Christ is dead. The, the, the author of life, the healer, the redeemer, is dead. What, what a surreal moment in time. I can only imagine what was going through the disciples' minds, through Joseph, through Nicodemus. And so, as we're looking at this passage, um, we're going to take our time in, the, in this first half. So this is the burial. So we're going to take our time and, and really look closely at the burial, um, because I believe it points to something. Um, so we're, uh, <clears throat> we're going to go down to the details, and we're going to look at it very finely, because I really think there's something beautiful and wonderful that John is trying to illustrate to us. So we have Joseph of Arimathea, we have Nicodemus, um, two members, supposed members of the Sanhedrin. Um, and John makes it explicit that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a believer in secret, and also Nicodemus, alluding to earlier in John 3, who came to him by night. Um, and so it's, there's kind of this twofold task that's going on. Joseph of Arimathea approaches Pilate and asks him, um, if he could take the body and if he could bury it, and Pilate allows it, and the Nicodemus goes and prepares the herbs and the spices, prepares um, the myrrh and the aloes. And um, he prepares 75 pounds in weight, 75 pounds of perfume. Um, so if I could have Johannin, Johannin, could you come up here for a second? Thank you. All right. So let's get, let's get some cameras on Johanan so everyone can see. You want to give everyone a wave? Okay, perfect. All right. Um, I'm actually going to stand, have you stand a little to my left because I need to read my notes. All right. <clears throat> so Johanan, do you know what to do when you see a black bear? Do you know what to do? Run. Run. No, you're not supposed to run, actually. That's a good, that's a good guess. That's a good guess. Um, when you see a black bear, you're supposed to make a noise as loud as possible. And you're supposed to, yeah, you don't scream. You don't have to. And you're supposed to make yourself as big as possible. So can you try and make yourself as, you don't have to scream, but can you make yourself as big as possible, as tall and as intimidating as possible? Arms, arms over your head. There, there you go. There you go. Yeah, there we go. Okay, perfect. Just hold your hands up. Hold your hands up. Just like that. Perfect. All right. Johanan, how much do you weigh? Uh, like 60 something. 60 That's perfect. Actually, hands up. Hands up. Okay, so we have a big, strong, scary Johanan, right? And he's 65 pounds, which is actually good because um, it says in the Greek, it says 100 litres, which is more accurately around like 65 to 70 pounds. So, so um, imagine if you will, big and strong, big and strong, right? Um, imagine if you will, essentially his weight in spices. His weight in spices. 
right? And, and it's not, I mean, he's, you know, he's a lean, mean Chinese American, right? So he's dense, right? So this is, this is like, I, I was going to bring a, a trash bag up, but I, I didn't think that was appropriate. Thank you. You can go have a seat. You can go ahead and have a seat. Thank you. Thank you. Give him a round of applause. Right? This, this is a lot of spices, right? This isn't, this isn't running John 12. Um, when Mary anoints Jesus, it's one leek tray, one leek tray, right? So it's roughly like 11 ounces or a pound or so. This is a hundred, right? And it's not dense at all. It's um, the, what they do with the myrrh. Myrrh is kind of like a sap that hardens. And what they do is they would grind that up. And the aloe is not, um, it's not like aloe vera. It's not like that stuff, but it's, it's, um, it's a, from, I think, a, chi, a tree in that area of sandalwood. So the, basically, this, it's a very potent um, perfumey kind of wood. And what they would do is they would grind that down as well, and they would mix it together. So there's this huge amount of, uh, look at the snow outside. Uh, there's a huge amount of spices, right? That Nicodemus is bringing a lot to, uh, to bury Christ. <clears throat> So as we continue, so he has he, obviously not Nicodemus by himself, but probably his servants. He was a man of stature. Um, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So what's happening is on the Sabbath, you can't work, right? So Saturday is, is quickly approaching. Right, so they decide not to bring him to a different tomb. They bring him to the closest, you could say, one of the closer tombs, right? And they want to try and finish his burial as quickly as possible, so that they're not seen doing work on the Sabbath, right? And um, and there's this garden, and by garden it doesn't mean necessarily like flowers and, and wonderful growth, but it's kind of this elaborate structure, not necessarily. Um, a garden with <laughs> vegetables or with flowers, but kind of this, uh, this structure that was made purposeful. Um, and in that structure, there was a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. And so um, I kind of got this picture um, to hopefully kind of give us a, a better idea of what, uh, what it looks like, right? So later on, when we see that uh, Mary and, and John were stooping down to look. The reason for that is because the tombs were kind of dug down, right? They're not like, you can't just walk into it, but they're dug down. And um, you see that little hole, <laughs> that little ditch um, in the center. That's not the, that's not the tomb. That's not the grave. That's actually for people um, to work on the bodies. You might see just a little in front of that, that's the cloth. That's where they saw the cloth. So they kind of have this, uh, this ditch dug down and that bottom part is so people can work on the body so they can wrap the spices up um, on him and lay him there. And then the idea was you could lay him there. You could lay two others um, next to him. And um, there's, there's this idea of when the body is done or when the body's done decomposing, then you have a second burial, which is like when you, they take their bones and they put it in like, a, they call it a bone box, right? And that's kind of your more official burial, but this is kind of what they did to you as, as you were decomposing, right? <clears throat> and so the reason, the reason why I, I'm bringing this up is I, I want to, I, I 
I personally find it fascinating, but I like to visualize how Mary and John like looked into the tomb. And uh, through excavations, uh, we have this rough idea, rough idea of what happened. But so why this um, garden? Why this elaborate structure? Um, why does John mention it specifically? And I think it's allusions to, I think it's allusions to um, Christ as king. Christ as king, as, as we see Nicodemus and the many spices that he's bringing, the, the 75 pounds worth of spices to anoint him, to bury Christ. As we see the garden, the garden is mentioned specifically because in, there's allusions in Old Testament in 2 Kings 11, that the kings of Judah are, are buried in the garden, this elaborate structure. And also, uh, lastly, the detail of that it was a new tomb, right? No one else was laid here. Right? So when they came and see, see that Christ wasn't there, it wasn't like there was a different body and they just got replaced. <laughs> that Christ was the only one. It was a kingly burial. There we go. Um, Back one. Okay, Jesus was crucified, died, and buried as a king. As a king. These solutions go back to John 12, where he was um, laid with a crown of thorns. When um, Pilate brings him out to among the Jews, he says, Behold your king. Right? And even on the cross, says, Here's the king of the Jews. Here's our king. Behold your king. He, he was crucified. He died and buried as a king. And so why do, why do I think that's important? I think it's very interesting that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were the ones to bury him. It wasn't it wasn't his disciples. It wasn't the ones that he fed. It wasn't those that he healed. It was Nicodemus who came to him by night. And Joseph, who we, who we see is a, a follower by secret, right? But, but Joseph makes a very direct request to Pilate. So we, we know that Joseph is, is a man of stature, man of wealth that he could have that audience, that he could speak with Pilate. That's not for everyone to, um, not everyone could speak with Pilate, right? To make this request. And so you have two rich, wealthy men, men of position, men of social stature. They are the ones that buried our Lord and Savior. Now, I, I think back in, in John 12, where he talks about, as the Son of Man is lifted up, he will bring all men to himself. A lot of times we like to think it's, you know, <laughs> I'm not trying to speak poorly of the apostles or the early church fathers, but um, men of stature believed in him too. At least that's what we're led to believe in. And in, in, in truth, they took a, an incredible step of boldness. Joseph of Arimathea probably amongst the Sanhedrin, coming forward, requesting the body of Christ amongst his brothers. 
amongst those who despised him. Nicodemus likewise honoring him. Some 60, 70 pounds worth of, of, of myrrh, of aloe, to give him a proper burial, to give him a burial that they thought he deserved. It's one of the, the few times, it's one of the few times in the gospel that it seems like Christ is being treated appropriately, that he's being honored appropriately. And by who of all people? Joseph and Nicodemus. They came out of the darkness. They came out of the shadows, which is why I think John brings it up. And I don't think, I don't think they were men in knowing. I don't think they foreknew that Christ was going to resurrect from the grave, so let's honor him now. You know, if that was the case, Nicodemus probably wouldn't give him 75 pounds worth of spices. <laughs> He's just going to come back. Right? Why waste it? They were men, they were men, rich men. Men of stature, men of standing, but they were in a moment of despair, moment of disbelief, moment of what do we do? The king is dead. Come, let us bury him as a king. So what we see in that is that. In John's description of the burial, he invites us to honor Christ as our king. Last week, we were talking about <clears throat> what does it mean to look upon the one whom we have pierced? What is our response to the work that is finished? So John <clears throat> invites us to celebrate him. Despite our despair, despite our disbelief, despite our position or social standing, we're called to celebrate, to uplift our king. You know, it's, um, it's interesting what we're willing to stand for nowadays. There's uh, a lot of platforms that we have. And there's a lot of, you know, with social media, you can send your message to the world very easily. And I think many of us, many of us are more willing or have stood more on platforms that were not honoring Christ as king. I can speak for myself. I feel like, you know, we're more encouraged, we're more emboldened to stand on the platform of the Democrat or the Republican Party. We're ready to tell people that and explain why. We're, we're more willing to stand on platforms of pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. Of should we open the country or should we close it? I think many, many of us have, have chosen sides and, and, and made ready defenses for these things. And unfortunately, we have lost sight of the king in all of it. We've lost sight of the firm foundation. We have lost sight of the true platform. The true resurrecting power. It's difficult to stand for Christ. 
So um, I want to take this time to thank the church for approving the budget, um, which is helping fund my education. And so in this, I hope to give back to you. Um, I'm taking church history. Um, and one thing that I found pretty fascinating that my professor talked about is there is um, there's a great uh, understanding or a great uh, uh, lifting up of the early church fathers, the early, the early apostles. And I think that's true. And I think, you know, they, they suffered incredibly for the faith. One thing he brought up to me that kind of turned my head a bit was it's the church fathers and the church mothers. I said, well, I haven't heard that before. What do you mean, church mothers? Right? And I, we, can, we can deal deal with it. But what he meant was that it wasn't just men who were writing, and it wasn't just men who were being martyred. And he, he um, in this text, we have uh, the name of a woman named Blandina one of the early martyrs of our faith, I think around the second century. So I know this, this is kind of wordy, um, but it is gut-wrenchingly beautiful. Um, so I, I, pray, I, pray, I pray your patience, but I'd like to read some of the experts, excerpts that we have from her, um, from church, church history. <clears throat> so it says, now Blandina suspended on a stake was exposed as food to wild beasts, which were let loose against her, even to look on her as she hung crosswise in earnest prayer, wrought great eagerness in those who were contending for the faith. For in their conflict, they beheld with their outward eyes in the form of their sister, him who was crucified, for them that he might persuade those who believe in him that all who suffer for the glory of Christ have unbroken fellowship with the living God. For when we were all afraid, and her mistress, being Blandina, according to the flesh, was in a state of agony, lest the weakness of her body render her unable to make a bold confession, Blandina was filled with such power that those who by Turns kept torturing her in every way from dawn till evening were worn out and exhausted and themselves confessed defeat from the lack of aught else to do with her. They marveled that the breath still remained in a body so mangled and covered with gaping wounds. They testified that a single form of torture was sufficient to render life extinct, let alone such and so many. But the blessed woman, like a noble champion, in confession, regained her strength, and for her to say, I am a Christian, with us no, no evil finds a place, was refreshment and rest. Last one. <clears throat> the heathen tried to force them to swear by their idols, and, they, and as they remained firmed, Set them not, the multitude was so infuriated at them that had neither compassion for the youth of the boy, the boy being Ponticus, nor respect for the sex of the woman. But blessed, but the blessed Bladina, 
Last of all, having like a high-born mother, exhorted her children and sent them forth victorious to the king, traveled herself along the same path of conflicts as they did, as she's approaching martyrdom, and hastened to them, rejoicing and exulting at her departure, like one bidden to a marriage supper, rather than to cast to the wild beasts. And after the scourging, and after the wild beasts, and after the frying pan, she was at last thrown into a basket and presented to a pole. Then she too was sacrificed, and even the heathen themselves acknowledged that never in their experience had a woman endured so many terrible sufferings. Makes you feel like a punk. <laughs> Makes you feel so weak, so small. You know, here, here I am getting frustrated over emails, over things that are changing. Not standing on the platform of Christ. Not telling my neighbors like Mary did. And I'm not, I'm not trying to convict. But I'm trying to encourage that the power, the spirit that was with Landina, that was with all the church apostles, with all the martyrs, that's the same spirit we worship here today. So if you are struggling, if you are anxious, if you are angry, if you are frustrated, take heart. Look upon the one whom they have pierced. So the question we're asking is, for this year, who has been our Lord and our God? Who have we anointed as our king or kings? Who are we standing for? I admire the passage in 2 Corinthians 12. It says, his power is perfected in our weakness. Surely his grace is sufficient. Take heart, church. Brothers and sisters, I know it's hard. I am struggling. I am weak. And I'm not trying to point to myself as this beacon of hope. But I hope to point you to Christ, who is our hope. Who, in who we are secure. So let's stand. Not physically, but <laughs> take your platforms. Don't be caught up in meaningless wars of man. But like Landina in our suffering, may we ever turn to Christ and may we only proclaim, I am a Christian. This is one of my, one of my favorite um, lines as I was reading these different dialogues between um, the, you know, the Greek philosophers or, or the Greek um, centurions, the Roman centurions, right? And they're, and they're investigating. And so there's this dialogue that goes back and forth. And the Romans are saying, you know, repent of this foolishness. Go, get away from him. Just curse your God. And they just repeat, I am a Christian. Like, just stop. We, we will spare you. We'll, you. You will live. You'll be with your family again. I am a Christian. Oh, what boldness. What faith. So let us, let us lift Christ as our king.
as Christ as our true Savior, as our Lord. So now let's move to the second half of this passage. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. So Mary, early in the morning, Mary approaches the tomb. She sees that um, the stone has been rolled away. Immediately, she runs to find Peter, and the beloved is John, tells them they've taken him. And so Peter and the other disciple are running out. They're running out to see the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, remember stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. I highlight that word, saw. Uh, We're going to get to that in a little bit. But he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. So Peter and John are running. Mary's probably going after them. John reaches the tomb first. He looks in. He sees the linen cloths there. And and, uh, Peter's still running. Peter's still rowing, and John is stopping at the door. He's not going in, right? Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. So Peter, being a man of action, just ran right in there, right? Uh, He saw the linen clothes lying there on the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So Peter uh, Peter ran in, stooped down into that little area and investigated, right? He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head. The other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So Peter and John run to the, they run to the tomb. Peter goes in first. Peter looks around. Um, after Peter goes in, John goes in, he looks around, and there's this conclusion that John reaches. He saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So I, I illustrate that to, there's three um, different words. In English, it just says, saw, saw, saw. He saw, he saw, he saw. Excuse me. But in the Greek, he uses three different words. He uses three different words um, to describe. So first, when, um, <clears throat> first in verse 5, when John initially gets to the tomb and he stoops to look in, he uses um, the Greek word, which is blepo, blepo, which is kind of to see, to look at. Um, and in the second time, so first John stoops to look in, John blepoed. You could say it. Um, and then the second uh, verb that he used to say saw is uh, the root of theoreo, which um, is kind of to see, to contemplate, to investigate almost. So, so John goes right in, like I said, man of action. He's looking around. He's investigating what took place here. Right? He's, he's looking for cause, actions. He's looking for clues. And then lastly, Adon, um, which its root was orao, um, and this is John. So after Peter goes in, John comes in after him. He looks around in orao, and he perceives. And, and from this, well, kind of from this perceiving, he says he saw and believed. 
So, so in this seeing, in this form of seeing, um, he believed. And what, what did he believe? The word pistuo, it's always um, related and closely related in the book of John to Jesus. So he believed in Jesus. And we can't, spoil it, um, we, can't, <laughs> we can't really illustrate much farther than that. But we can say that he believed in Jesus. You know, did he know the Trinity and all the dogmas and doctrines? We don't know, but he believed in Jesus. And so there is this, um, there is this uh, difference in seeing, right? So Peter looks and investigates. He contemplates, right? And whereas um, John looks, he perceives and perceives. So there's, diff there's this difference between contemplating and perceiving. And so, um, <clears throat> so um, in this picture, I'm, I'm trying to use this example. I might be um, a little bit exaggerating, but I, I, want, I want us to kind of see what the difference is here. And I think John is very purposeful in using the verb orao, especially if you look back through. Um, but contemplating and investigating and perceiving. So if you were to look at this picture, it's a wonderful picture. Um, and, and we'll say we're in contemplating. We're, we'll say we're in um, investigating, right? You can describe it, right? You can describe there's a blue sky. There's these wonderful mountains. You can describe the group and who, the, who even the people are, right? It's a wonderful picture. It's a great picture. Um, this was taken at the, the end of our mission trip to um, the Lummi Reservation. And that's how, that's how you would investigate it. That's, that's how you'd investigate it. You could guess what, based on shadows, what time of day we were there. You could guess you know, the temperature based on where we were closed. You could guess who the people are, right? And, and for those of you who didn't go, that's probably a good way of investigating, of, of contemplating it. It's a great picture. Um, for me, however, as, as, as I perceive it, oh, it just makes me so glad. <laughs> because when I, as I perceive it, I know all the people who went on that trip. And I, I know how their struggles. <laughs> I know how they grew on this trip. I saw how people who, you know, just could not pray, could not get enough of prayer. <laughs> I saw people who, um, were, seemed cold-hearted at times, breaking down. I saw the Spirit move in these kids as, as we worshiped the Lord together at the end of the evenings. I see the great sacrifices that many of them made, putting up with me as a leader, for sure. Um, but I perceive something tremendously different. And as I look at this picture, I think of what a wonderful moment, what a wonderful capture, way to capture what took place that week. See, there's this, there's this difference in perceiving and contemplating. There's this um, difference in how they're looking at the situation. And I think I'm, like I said, I, I am kind of exaggerating. Um, but as we look at that, let's go back to the scriptures. So this is, um, this is John again. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. He perceived and he believed. 
For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So what is, what is John, or what, what is John saying as he perceived? I don't think John is saying I had this great, you know, I had this better relationship with Jesus, which is why I'm called the beloved throughout the gospel. And that's why I reached the tomb first is because I was more beloved by Jesus. And, you know, I don't think he's saying that. I don't think he's saying, you know, I have this understanding that you don't have. But what he is saying is, I think the emphasis is on the end of that. It says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. I think in his perception, what John is saying is, this isn't the result of some formula. You know, this isn't, this isn't if you put all the Old Testament prophecies together, you know, then he naturally has to rise from the dead. Right? If you carry the two and take flip or take Isaiah and, and use the right scriptures, obviously he has to rise from the dead. John's not saying that. And, and I think at times, you know, we can um, we can't kind of go down this lens of if you only understood the Old Testament correctly, then you would see that. And I'm not saying that's not true. Certainly, if you go through Matthew's gospel, there's prophecy after prophecy and fulfillment. But that's not John's what John is pointing us to. What John is simply saying is, I saw. <laughs> I saw the empty tomb. This isn't, this isn't some formula that I put together. This isn't something that I made up. I saw the empty tomb. And that is my only explanation. I saw it and I believe. Like it says, like it says in First John, that that which we have seen, that with our eyes, that we have heard with our ears, that we have touched with our hands. John's John's simply just bearing witness. He's just saying the tomb is empty, the linen clothes are folded. He's alive. He's alive. I don't think it's this great faith. I think it's a tiny seed of faith, right? It's not, you know, it's not putting together the right philosophy or the right theology or the right formula. He simply saw the empty tomb. He was graced to see the empty tomb. And by God's grace, he believed. This isn't, our faith is not the right math equation. Our faith is, is like that of the martyrs, like that of the church fathers, is that we are Christians. I see, I believe. So let's look at this idea of contemplation. Again, I don't think he's, I don't think John's trying to say I'm better than Peter in, in this way. But I think if you're like me, which hopefully you are, I've done a lot of contemplating this past year. It's been a, a very long, I don't think anyone had a good year. <laughs> I think 2020 is a very long year and I spent a lot of time contemplating, a lot of time, you know, investigating, right? 
<laughs> so much, so many countless hours trying to figure out what is the coronavirus? How does it spread? How does it, how does it, um, how does it work? How do we best protect ourselves? Right? And, and just so, so much of the chaos I felt like needed to be investigated. Whether it's what are the right laws or what were the results of the election, right? Or what are the school rules now? We spent a lot of time investigating and building up platforms. And I think we've made an idol of knowledge. Not saying that knowledge is bad, obviously, and I'm not saying we need to end all mitigation techniques because I'm still wearing a mask. But I think in this culture in particular, we, we have definitely made an idol of our knowledge and that we feel that in our knowing, I'm secure. In, in, our, in our knowledge, I'm safe. Right? In, in, in knowing about all these different facets or all these different things going on, I can be justified in my opinions, that I can be right. How foolish, how foolish to think that in all our, our studying and all, all our sciences, and again, I'm not saying that those are bad, but I'm saying we have lifted a pedestal to it, that a lot of our hope is based on these things. What we hope to protect us, what we hope to save our families, what we hope to save our, our self-righteousness. Spent a lot in contemplating investigating. And so as we go to, from contemplating to perceiving, um, this word orao, it simply means to come and perceive, to have this understanding. Right? And so the seed of faith that is planted in John through the perception of truth or the seed of faith is planted in John through the perception of the truth before him. So he, he saw and he believed. And this word orao, like I talked about, this invitation is, is to come and see. Is if you look through uh, the Gospel of John, oftentimes when, when um, Jesus is inviting people, right? Because he, he knows that these, these, these are hard to believe. These, these phrases are hard to understand. He says, you know, believe in the signs, which is kind of odd. Usually we're against signs, but he says, believe in the signs. If you can't believe in me, believe in the signs. And, and often when he's doing his miracles and often um, in those times when he's revealing his glory, it's, it's this invitation of come and see. When, when they're calling the first disciples in the beginning of John, he says, come and see, come and orao, come and see. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to see that he is risen. It's an invitation to see that our God is alive. How great is our God that despite our weakness, he made it plain to our eyes. That we need not fear death, nor disease, nor powers, nor, nor anything. We don't need to fear 
COVID-19. We don't need to fear the results of the election. We don't need to fear whatever's going on with GameStop and the economy. <laughs> he is alive. The grave is empty. Do you see that? I'm not being ironic, but do you see that? Where's our faith been? Where's our life been? It's found only in Christ, only in the one who overcame the grave. That is where we find our security. That is our platform to which we stand. So as I close, I'd invite you, come. Let us worship, let us look upon the one whom they have pierced. Come, let us see the empty tomb. Praise the Lord, he's alive. Let's pray. Father, you are our one foundation, our one security, our one truth. Forgive us, Lord, how we have not sought you in our troubles. We've not stood for you in our times of need. We have not been willing to sacrifice our standing. We have not been willing to be ridiculed for the faith. Forgive us, Lord. Give us that spirit, the spirit that has dwelled with the apostles, with the church fathers, with Blandina, that we would stand and proclaim, I am a Christian. Give us that security, Lord, and by your grace, we will have peace. Peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, fix our eyes on you again. Fix our eyes on the empty tomb.